Well, welcome back to the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Rand and Jim Thompson. After today, you might call us the Colgate Communist Hour. Today, we have Brett Dakin, writer of the new book, American Daredevil. Brett is the grandnephew of Lev Gleason of Lev Gleason Publications, responsible for titles like The Golden Age Daredevil and The Little Wise Guys. Brett, how are you doing today? Great. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I, I wanted to start with you in law school, or, or you finished law school, and you've got a New York job, and suddenly this becomes super important to you to, to research and understand your granduncle. Let's talk about that, and then I want to talk about procedurally what you did in terms of your methodology for doing your research on the book. Sure. I mean, it actually started before I graduated from law school. I was at Harvard Law School, and I was in my last semester at school, and I was really tired of being in school and studying for exams. And I, you know, I think what prompted this really was reading Cavalier and Clay, the novel, because I was not a big comic book reader growing up. And in fact, I still am not. But my way into this story was through my family. And growing up, I heard stories about Uncle Lev uh, and it really wasn't about the comics. It was about him as a larger-than-life figure from New York City who would come to town every once in a while to visit my mom, who was in the suburbs of Boston. And he would sort of roll into town in his Packard and drive all the kids in the neighborhood to the mall and say, you know, get whatever you want, and it's on me. And that was called Uncle Lev's Day. So that was kind of my vision of him lodged in my head. But I really started to focus on the comic book and the political angle after reading Cavalier and Clay and it dawning on me that, that that novel is set in the same sort of milieu as Uncle Lev's time in New York City, beginning in the 30s through the 40s and ending in the mid 50s. And I started at the archives of Harvard College because I was on campus and that's where Uncle Lev went to school, but he was only there for a year before he dropped out to fight in World War I. So to be honest, I didn't really come up with much in Cambridge. And as you say, I moved to New York, started working at a law firm, and that was really where my research took off. When did this become not just an interest, but where you thought, I'm going to turn this into a book? After law school, when I was working at a law firm, and I, in my spare time, I would do research uh, at places like the New York Public Library and the uh, New York Historical Society and, and really just living in New York, moving to New York after law school, much the way Uncle Lev moved to New York. He was a little older when he arrived in New York and Manhattan. But I kind of started following in his footsteps. And I thought, you know, there's a really interesting story here. And as I talk to more people in the world of comic books and comic book history, like you guys, I realized that there was a, a dearth of material on his life and his career. And so I set about trying to uh, put together everything I could find and piece together the truth about some of the more mysterious aspects of his life. So I, I want to compliment you on the book, first of all, because and in doing so, I want to read a, a short passage that got my attention immediately, which was, when I imagine the city Lev saw through his wire rim glasses, I see it as black and white, 
Pedestrians are frozen in mid-stride. American flags are limp and still. Of course, for Lev, it was vivid and bursting with color. I want to say that with your approach on this, I felt the color. I think you got into that, and it didn't seem black and white. You put your perspective on it, but you put yourself in the book in a way as as a character and I, as you're doing the research when you're traveling and talking to old neighbors and things it was it it that's what i loved about the book and i i yeah, wanted it was like a, it was like reading your journey through the through figuring it out that was pretty cool it felt to me less like a typical comic book history book which are usually not that good but they're informative this one felt like i was reading Dr. O's Ragtime or something. It was like, because it was about the time and it was about the politics and it was about New York City as a place. And it it wasn't just about your your uncle. And, and that's what I wanted to say to you to get us started. Well, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for saying that. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And that was very much by design, partly because to be honest with you, first of all, I am not an expert on comic books. I am not a comic books historian. I'm really an, uh, an amateur in that field. And second of all, this all this stuff happened a long time ago. I mean, Uncle Lev was born in 1898, and he died in 1970, the early 1970s, before I was even born. So right. the fact is that there were, by the time I got to doing my research, there weren't that many people left who could tell me about a personal interaction with this guy. So just to your point, I, I felt like I had to put myself in the story and I really had to make it about more than just this one man because there, was, there wasn't that much available to me in the traditional kind of biographer's toolbox. I mean... The most ex one of the most extraordinary things about this project to me is that this man who was a publisher who loved writing and reading and letters and publications of all kinds did not leave behind a single piece of paper. I mean, there's not a letter. There's not a diary. There, there's nothing. And my family, we don't even own a comic book. Yeah. I mean, it, it's really kind of insane when you think about it. So in order to piece together all this stuff, I really had to dig pretty deeply into whatever archival resources were available, talking to people, and then accumulating a little bit of this material just by buying it online and stuff. But, but I, I, I really appreciate what you said, and that was that was you know part of my goal was to make it a, a story that would be fun to read, not just an academic text. Yes, Alex. Yeah, so the one of the really fun and fascinating things that I, I generally love about this period is reading about the early formation of the comics industry. And so you start off with him having kind of his New England life and then moving to New York, he's 34. So he's not young really in that sense, but then he really starts off a really interesting and memorable life. He's there, he's kind of doing work in advertising and 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 publishing in some sense and then he's there working at eastern color with charles max Gaines, and he's there in the beginning of the comic industry and he's rarely mentioned in this context i think you're the first time your book was the first time i actually knew he was actually there 
Everyone always credits Charles Max Gaines for folding the comic and putting it on the newsstand and seeing what would happen. But he was actually there as part of that. And he was also there negotiating with American News Corporation to actually distribute the first comics, which started off the industry. To Tell us about figuring that out and the journey of that and the details of that. That's just such a fascinating thing. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to say is what you pointed out, which is that he was kind of a fish out of water in this context. I mean, he he had grown up in the suburbs of Boston, a very comfortable life. His father was a doctor, a prominent family doctor. He went to school in Newton, Mass., and then he went to Phillips Andover, a fancy prep school. And then he went off to Harvard, as I say, for a year. Then he dropped out pretty quickly thereafter and fought in France during World War I. And then he stuck around in France and he studied at the Sorbonne as part of this really amazing program that was available to U.S. servicemen who were interested in studying in France. It's amazing to think of that kind of program and, and it being available to servicemen today. I mean, that was for him, I think, very formative. He was there really at the time that the armistice, the Treaty at Versailles was being negotiated. Woodrow Wilson was in town. And I think that he was a very young man, but that was where his sort of start in politics and political beliefs really kicked off. So when he came back to Boston, I think it was a bit of a letdown, to be honest. Yeah. He wanted something more interesting. Yeah, you know, he's kind of coming back to this where he had grown up. And of course, he could have had a comfortable life. He 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 tried his hand as a stockbroker for a bit. Then he got into magazines and really advertising. And he moved to New York to make it big. And I think it's important to say that he, you know, he, he was interested in making money and you, and comics for him was a vehicle for advertising. Like, let, let's just say it. Like, that right. was, it wasn't about the art. It wasn't about the stories. It wasn't about uh, the creating extraordinary medium that we now appreciate. At the very beginning, I don't think it really was about that. It was, right. a, you know, for him, it was about making money. But it also was about politics, and it was, and I think that's what sets him apart from a lot of the folks that are more commonly known is that, and maybe it's because of this, I think for Uncle Lev, he saw publishing as a way to do well for himself, but also a way to get the message out. And it was that during that very period in the 30s when the comic book was born and he was there, that he was also experimenting with socialism, communism new ideas about the way the world could be structured. And so I think that, you know, comic books initially, that was secondary for him. It was yes. really about these other things. Alex Zauzin is the Alexander Lev phase, right? Where he was uh, basically kind of a member of the Communist Party but and part of these publications, but he was kind of not quite formed as Lev Gleason publications yet. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it really wasn't... <clears throat> Until the, it really wasn't until World War II that he established Lev Gleason Publications, put his name right on there on every comic book, which I also found very unique. I don't think there's another example of a comics publisher putting the name of the owner right on every single issue. 
in the industry at the time, they would call Martin, Martin Goodman's comics Goodman Comics because he had so many different little things, but none of those little things had his name on it like, like Lev did. Yeah. And so he, now he had a very healthy ego. You know, he, he, he likes his name being on the cover. So, but it's interesting because this, he was not an artist. He was not a writer of comic books. He was, a, he was really a writer of political material. And that started off in, as you say, in the 1930s, kind of under a pseudonym. But by the time, you know, the early 40s rolled around, he was a staunch FDR Democrat. And mm-hmm. he used his publications to promote his belief in progressive ideals and FDR's vision for, you know, the New Deal and really remaking American government as a society to support people who were hurting. So I think that that's really what motivated him. And to tie it back to the comic books, you see in, for example, you know, Daredevil Battles Hitler at the end of 1941, where those two things come together, which is that I think by then he realized, well, actually, these, these comic books could be really interesting as a way to not only sell advertising and make money, but also as a way to get my political views out there, but in a slightly different way than writing letters to the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Jim, go ahead. So you, you went to the next subject I was going to ask you about, which was the Daredevil versus Hitler, because that was very interesting to me in the context of where he was about cover, U.S. involvement in the war and helping the allies over there. There was some, some contradiction early on about that in terms of him. Talk about that and then about how the process, how Daredevil versus Hitler was assembled and put out and, and, and who was hired to do it and that kind of thing. I, so I think in terms of the war, doing the research was such a good reminder for me that Americans were not into the idea of entering World War II at first. I mean, it really, I think today it's become so much a part of our lore and our identities yeah. as, as Americans, right? That we that we fought the good war and we, you know, erased Nazism from the face of the earth. And that is true, but it it took a while for the U.S. to get involved. And FDR was very reluctant himself. So, you know, Uncle Lev was initially reluctant, as you say, and he was reluctant because his view was, well, if we just get involved in the war on the side of all of these, what he would have called reactionary forces in Europe, meaning not socialists, then what good is that going to do? Because it's just going to prop up the very things in Europe that, you know, I believe need to change. But I would say by the end of 1941, he and his you know, the, the folks that he was hanging around with in New York City had realized that, look, the, the threat of Hitler was way more important than those concerns and that the only way that he was going to be defeated would be if the U.S. entered the war. And so you see in Daredevil Battles Hitler a very, very explicit call for the U.S. to enter into the war. And, you know, I, I the, the story of how it was assembled is 
is not, you know, it's certainly not a story that I found myself. I found I, it was documented in comic book history that I consulted in writing the book, but it, you know, it, it, it's, an, and, and it also is echoed in, in Michael Shaban's Cavalier and Clay, where there are references to the very same thing. But essentially it came together, you know, extremely quickly in the context of uh, w- wartime rationing of paper, where essentially there was paper available and Uncle Lev said, we need to do something with this now. And you've got a weekend to figure it out. And, you know, Daredevil Battles Hitler is what his team came up with. Okay. Yeah, and there was this stance of how the labor unions were kind of against being involved in the war. And you mentioned a couple of things that helped change that and may have actually helped formulated Lev's stance on it. Also, as far as really being for it, 100%, was two things. Pearl Harbor attack, which is obvious. I think a lot of people know about that. But then also when Germany invaded the Soviet Union, that was another trigger to kind of get more of the labor people wanting to be entering the war. And that was an interesting aspect that I think a lot of people don't really just casually know. Yeah. And I think that that also speaks to this controversy, which really dogged Uncle Lev beginning in the 40s and then again in the 50s, which is, was he a communist? And what did it mean to be a communist? And that was a really pivotal point for a lot of folks like Uncle Lev, because when they when they saw that that Hitler and and Stalin at Germany and the Soviet Union were going to be on opposite sides of this conflict, it became a lot easier for them to encourage the U.S. to enter into the war on the side of the Soviet Union. So it's right, very right. yeah very clear. So again, that that's what I think is is so interesting about Uncle Lev's stories. It's very it's not like. I, I, I hope he's not presented this way in the book. Like he's not, he's not a superhero himself. He's complicated. He has a different motivations. We can yeah. talk later about his motivations for defending the comic book in the face of attacks from yes. Fred yeah. Wortham and this stuff. But I think on the political issue, very complicated, different motivations as well. You know, if Hitler and Stalin had remained allied, would he have encouraged the U.S. to enter into the war? Maybe not. So it's, it's really, you know, that we'll, we'll never know, but it, it's true that by the time, you know, Daredevil Battles Hitler came out, the, a lot of things had shifted, which made that kind of more possible for him to, to proclaim in the sense that he could say, yes, the U.S. should enter into the war, not only to stamp out anti-Semitism, the Holocaust, and all the horrors that were going on in Europe, but also because it would mean that the U.S. would be fighting on the same side as the Soviet Union. Yes, and that was the thing that we'll go more into his whole anti-fascist stage later, but there was this thing that it, this was before a lot of the realities of the, of the Soviet purges were going on in the, in the 30s where Stalin was killing his opponents or their kids. And at the same time, the, the workers, people in the U.S. didn't know that stuff. And they almost romanticized it as being some sort of labor union utopia. And so there's this kind of interesting thing going on where there, it, it's, a, it's a lot of weird and cool things happening that now later we know more. But at the time, everyone was in their pockets of thinking. And it was all about being almost pro-Soviet in that sense. 
But back to our timeline. And so the, the Daredevil versus Hitler. So he hires Bob Wood and Charles Biro to help make that issue. And these guys are really instrumental because then they start off the whole crime comics. Crime does not pay. And, and it was interesting in that he had an interesting approach to the business model because they were very successful in what they did as a team. But unlike people like Donenfeld and Leibowitz or Martin Goodman, he was actually had them as junior partners because they were so good. He was actually sharing the profits, which, which is an interesting, I mean, I, I and that's actually, that's an aspect I, I, I find really admirable is that he was doing that, that he wasn't, I guess, he wasn't hoarding his cash, right? He was actually putting it toward people and causes that he believed in. And he really enjoyed working with these guys. Tell us about the relationship between these three. And also he phased out Morris and Bernard, which were like earlier partners as he took on these guys. Tell us about that business structure a bit. Yeah, I think that his, in terms of comic books, clearly his greatest decision ever and his genius was hiring Bob Wood and Charlie Byro. I mean, they, that was an incredible move because, again, Uncle Lev himself, he was a publisher. He was not, he was not an artist or a writer, so he needed to assemble a team of people and he needed to create the incentives for them to do their best work. So I think that it was it, this business structure that he created was twofold. It was motivated by two two goals. One was to to in practice in his own business kind of walk the talk because he was he was pro labor. He was pro workers' rights. He was anti capitalist, anti fascist. You know he he wrote. He published and wrote a lot of uh, material criticizing folks like Henry Ford, you know, a great industrialist and capitalist, but who was also an anti-Semite and was, you know, pretty okay with Hitler, to be honest. Same with Charles Lindbergh, same with DeWitt Wallace, the publisher of Reader's Digest. I mean, these are the, these are American icons that Uncle Lev was happy to, to sort of take down or try his best to take down. So I think his business was a way in which he could say, well, this is a different way of running things. And, you know, the other one, the other motivation is that he wanted people to do good work. And I think the best way to get people to do good work is to give them a stake in the business and to make them feel like they're part of an enterprise, a a collective enterprise and part of a community. And I think, you know, one of the most enjoyable parts of, the research that he did was, you know, I was able to talk to, for example, the son of his office assistant, you know, the woman, this incredible woman who basically ran the office on 32nd Street in mm. Manhattan. And I think, you know, it was through my conversations with him who had heard about Uncle Lev growing up just like I did as this larger than life figure, but as really a kind of paternalistic figure who took care of her, who took care of folks in the office and who believed that everyone deserved a fair share. So there are photographs, some of which are in the book, but others are not that depict, for example, parties in the office, holiday parties, a a real sense that this is a place where people could come together. And I think in a political sense as well, you know, Charlie Biro and Bob Wood shared Uncle Left's politics and right. so they were on the same page 
in that way. So I think that's the way that I see it. As for how he phased out his first partners and brought in his new partners, I don't have a lot to add. I, I was yeah. not, I really was not able to find any. Find out why that happened. No, yeah, that's I, an yeah. interesting, because that's an interesting transition to get, let go of those two and get these two. Right? Yeah. And I, and I just, it was one of those things that just, I couldn't, I wasn't able to find any material about that, which interesting. is, you know, one of the many disappointments. Mysteries. Of, there's right. still mysteries. Yeah. There's still <laughs> mysteries on this guy. Oh um, yeah. There definitely are. Yeah. But still, it was a very in-depth book. I enjoyed it as well. But there is also some interesting things just to point out. So Silver Streak with issue 22 then became Crime Does Not Pay by uh, Biro and Wood. The Little Wise Guys was interesting in that, although it's like a fun story that started to take over the Daredevil book, it was almost anti-child labor in certain aspects. And they would have little kids buy war bonds. This was very pro-FDR, like you said. But what's interesting is even though there was some like some of the bad things about FDR as far as the internment of the Japanese Americans, he was actually himself kind of a futurist. He didn't exactly agree with everything FDR did because he was very kind to his Japanese American neighbors. He hired a Japanese American comic artists like what Fred Kita and Ben Oda and those guys. So he himself was, I think, in that degree better than what the national what was going on in the country at the time i would say absolutely it's so he he hired the japanese american artist for sure and i i think he was it, it's very interesting because he was a lifelong supporter of fdr and a lifelong democrat but there are these certain aspects of FDR's legacy. I would say the Japanese internment is one, but also the refusal to enter into World War II, the refusal to allow Jewish immigrants, refugees into the United States while they were being exterminated in Europe that are clear blights on FDR's legacy that I think that Agalev was able to overcome. I never found anything that demonstrated that he was grappling with those obvious contradictions. But I think maybe his way of dealing with it was by the way he ran his business and the way he engaged with people in his personal life. So you mentioned the Japanese American artists and writers that he hired, or at least Bob Wood and Charlie Biro hired, because they were the ones who really made the, the decisions about uh, who, which illustrators and writers to hire. But also I think, you know, these interesting episodes that come up in his personal life, you know, one is that he was very active in New York City progressive circles and was, for example, featured in The People's Voice, which was a daily in Harlem published by Adam Clayton Powell Jr. and became a congressman representing actually the district that I live in in Harlem. He represented, then Charlie Rangel represented for a while, and now it's actually represented by Dominican-American Adriano Aspayat. So that's a very interesting trajectory in and of itself. But anyway, he, Uncle Rev was, was really engaged with people like Adam Clayton Powell, Paul Robeson, people who were writing very similar critiques of the United States as those that we read today. I'm talking about slavery as the original sin of the United States, um, you know, talking about things like affirmative action before the phrase affirmative action became commonly used. So that's another aspect. And then finally, there's that episode I write about in the book, which was bizarrely featured in the 
uh, the local paper of the town in which he lived, where there was an article in the paper that talked about these two Japanese and Japanese-American folks in Chappaqua, New York, who had been basically picked up and arrested for failing to follow certain rules about fishing in the local river. And the reason why it became a big story is because the paper featured the story was dead set against everything that Uncle Lev believed in. And it turns out that those two people were employees of Uncle Lev as well. They were, one was actually a Japanese citizen and one was a Japanese American who had grown up in the U.S. And they worked in Uncle Lev's house as staff in Chappaqua. And he essentially had to bail them out. And in doing so, he accused the local authorities of racism and of targeting these folks because they were Japanese. And so it's, it's just this one little anecdote that, you know, you, again, it's, it's amazing that that would rise to the level of something that the local paper would write about. But as I document in the book, they were totally obsessed with Uncle Lev and they documented every move he made because it was a Republican town and Uncle Lev was a, represent, a representation, uh, a representative of uh, the change that was about to come to that part of uh, the suburbs of New York, which is now solidly democratic and quite diverse. I, I wanted to, you were talking about the circle of friends and the associates that he had at the time. I, in reading your Chappaqua chapter, I noticed that one of his neighbors also regularly entertained Hammett. And I wondered if you came across, did they have any personal contact? Because they're both very central to crime and, and that hard-boiled notion of what crime was at the time. Do you know if they had a relationship? They're, they So Dashiel Hammett and Lillian Hellman yep. were married, and they were a couple, and they were part of the same circle, so they definitely socialized together. They were active in similar political activities, both in Manhattan and out in Westchester. So they were all, they all attended these meetings, which were designed to create a Democratic Party in a place that basically was 100% Republican. So I guess my answer is that they were, they definitely socialized together and they were on the same page politically, but I never found any evidence of a personal relationship between Dashiell Hammett and Lev Gleason. And I never found evidence of sort of the crime does not pay and the Maltese Falcon sort of coming together because as you say, they were of a piece yeah. and it was an interesting, an interesting connection that they were in the same world. I cannot imagine that they did not talk about it. That, that was my impression. And, but there was, it wasn't in the book. So I was curious, you know, in that crime does not pay chapter, it covers a lot of things his politics his his treatment of artists so many aspects, but one of them in the same chapter is his courtship with his third wife, Peggy, and his World War II service. It, it seems like this was a chapter where we started to understand who he was, both as a person and as a publisher. It's, it's a real character piece. Can we? But also, Peggy seems to be the, the other central character in the book as it develops, uh, and a, a worthy subject in her own right. Can you talk about her just briefly as you're discovering her as a person. Absolutely. As you say, Peggy was Uncle Lev's third wife and they were made married until Uncle Lev passed away. They were, they really became incredible soulmates. And I met 
Aunt Peggy, she lived until the mid 80s. So I did meet her once as a child. Of course, I didn't know anything about anything that we're talking about back then when I when I met her, but she came from a very different background. She did not come from comfortable circumstances. She in fact, she was abandoned by her parents and she spent time in an orphanage. She really struggled. She worked as soon as she possibly could because she needed to support herself. And she was married first time as well. Her first husband had some, some serious mental health problems and took his own life. And she, I think, you know, shared that sense of loss with Uncle Lev because Uncle Lev did have a son, but his son died as a teenager and so he was predeceased by his own child. And I think that while I have no evidence of this, I think that must have brought them together. Now, I think in a practical sense, what brought them together was politics because uh, they were on the same page politically and they met in Manhattan and at a time when they were both very active in meetings of the Communist Party and what were what would be called by the U.S. government front organizations, which was which described a whole range of of clubs and publications and and groups that, if you look at them today, you would think, how could that possibly be a threat to the safety of the United States of America? But that is where sort of the context in which they they met and they moved in together. They got married. And I, I, to your point, I think that Aunt Peggy was a really key figure in Uncle Lev's success because Uncle Lev was not a particularly practical person. And this is something that I knew growing up, again, back to those stories that I was told by my mom. He, was, he liked to make money, but he liked to spend money. And he spent a lot of it on a lot of other people. And I think Peggy was completely different. She came from a very modest background. And so she encouraged him to uh, rein it in and to save a little bit of money, not much, because when he died, they basically didn't have much. But I think that he, she was kind of a moderating influence in his professional and personal life. And I think that he was very, very lucky to have found her. So I want to move on to the Joint Anti-Fascist Refugee Committee and what happens with that in, in terms of how it later impacts your your uncle's life in a way you didn't anticipate in connection with the House Un-American Activities Committee. Tell us about those two entities and what, what happened there. Absolutely. So the Joint Anti-Fascist Refugee Committee was set up to support refugees of the Spanish Civil War. And the Spanish Civil War was a fight between Folks on the one hand who were called Republicans and they were fighting to preserve the Spanish Republic against a threat from uh, forces led by Franco who were fascist in orientation. And the folks that the committee was trying to help were the Republican refugees who were fleeing Spain because they needed to get out of there because of the war, because they weren't welcomed by the Franco forces, which ultimately prevailed. Now, the Uncle Lev was a big fundraiser. This was a really popular cause. I mean, this was the equivalent of, you know, a nonprofit that we would see today with celebrities endorsing it, supporting it through fundraising galas in New York. 
it's the same thing that people like Pablo Picasso, Lucille Ball, Dorothy Parker, Paul Robeson, all these you know, household names of the time were right on board with it. So I think it's important to say that because that's the case for a lot of groups that, you know, within just a few years would be deemed traitorous and threats to the United States government. But Uncle Lev was very active and he became a member of the board, along with people like Howard Fast, who was a journalist and writer and novelist who wrote about American history fictionalized and with a progressive approach. And eventually, the House Un-American Activities Committee, which was a committee in the House of Representatives, which was nominally devoted to rooting out un-American activities in the United States that were deemed domestic threats, but essentially became obsessed with the threat of communism even before the end of World War II. We think of McCarthyism and the Red Scare, which came along later, but really this was the first iteration of the targeting of people who who had any connection with the communist movement. And uh, so Uncle Lev and this organization was drawn right into that fight. And, and, and it, this it, was in the late, this is in the later 40s under President Truman, right? It was essentially, it was a fight that went on for many years, but yes. And, and, and that's another interesting thing, back to our conversation about FDR. Truman was another president that Uncle Lev adored and was on board with in terms of his progressive agenda. But on this particular point, they were diametrically opposed because Harry Truman created through executive orders and his appointees a lot of the structures that led to the targeting of alleged communists in working for the U.S. government and outside of the U.S. government. And the U.S. Department of Justice worked hand-in-hand with these guys in Congress, the House on American Activities Committee, and the FBI. It was sort of a three-pronged approach to, to rooting out communists wherever they thought they might find them. As an aside, they did not pay any attention to the threat of white supremacists, the Ku Klux Klan, the very threats to the United States that we are dealing with today. And I find there are interesting echoes of the current administration in the prior administration's approach to threats like that. But in any event, the Joint Anti-Fascist Refugee Committee was deemed a communist front organization with very little evidence that I could find other than the fact that uh, in the fight against fascism in, in Spain, there certainly were communists involved. Yeah, and in, and in terms of folks who supported the Republicans in Spain, in the United States, and elsewhere outside of Spain, there certainly were communists involved. And the U.S. government always remained neutral. We never intervened in Spain, even though Franco was clearly a fascist dictator who, you know, ruled Spain for decades to come. So Uncle Lev was hauled before the House Un-American Activities Committee, and along with the rest of his board members, he refused to uh, provide the names of the supporters of the group and the names of the refugees that the group was helping. Because, of course, the fear was if they did that, then those folks would be targeted. And essentially, he was convicted of contempt of Congress for failing to do that. And he, he never went to jail. Well, I want to ask about that in terms of, yeah. because, all right, so the subpoena comes out, and they're very, 
they have a strategy and they're very, he sounds like a lawyer. I'm, I'm an attorney as well. And he yeah. sounds like an attorney when he's doing that. And he's obviously proud of himself and how he's handling it. And he thinks he's got it, but they pen They, I won't say pen it on uh, one employee, but they, they managed to create a wall so they can in good faith say, we can't give you those documents. We don't have them. And it turns out that's not good enough for the committee and they find them all guilty. The part where it gets interesting for me is after the fact, when it comes down to sentencing, because some of them go to jail and were you, when you were researching this, were you surprised when you get to the point where he's one of the ones that doesn't name names, but he purges himself in terms of, of that and, and doesn't, take the fall the way that some of the others did. What was your, how did you process that when you were going through this? It was, it was a big moment for me in the, in the process of writing the book. You're, you're spot on because it's so interesting when you write a biography, you, you can't help but get close to the subject and start reading for the subject. And obviously when it's your own relative, it's even more the case. So uh, as I was researching and I was reading those briefs and those uh, opinions and kind of tracking the, the fight through the courts, because like you, I'm a lawyer and I, I love that stuff. I was kind of rooting for the Joint Anti-Fascist Refugee Committee. And so when ultimately he was convicted of contempt of Congress, but he kind of took the easy way out, you might say, by saying, well, you know, if I had known better, I would have provided you the names. I think is essentially what you could say purging yourself is in this context. It was it was a bit of a letdown, I will admit. It was I, a bit of a letdown. You know, I sense that in that when I was reading it and you list the people and then you have like Anne Lev and you wrote that sentence with such great dramatic effect and then silence. You know, that's it, it, like you, you're waiting for the next sentence and it doesn't come. It goes to the next chapter. And I thought, I think that bothered him. So that's that, that's interesting. OK, Alex. Yeah. And, and there was I mean, just to kind of you were very transparent about these organizations in it, which was great. But wasn't there some discussion of money laundering going on in this anti-fascist committee also i mean didn't you bring that up in there that was later though right that was with dorothy parker that was later but yeah but there was it was it wasn't like it was all perfect right i mean there was and then it's also an interesting thing because you have like democrats versus communists you have spanish republicans versus fascists it's like the terminology is so interesting Uh, it's just that life isn't that simple and i just find that that's cool that you you show all that stuff in there so frederick wortham censorship there's a lot of stuff going on locally in new york especially as far as censoring comics violence versus obscenity court cases that were coming up and how he would fight against censorship of his comics one to keep lucrative in what he was doing but also just ideologically he was against it tell us about that and his early encounters with Keith Alver and Wortham that are actually really even more interesting to me than the more normal stuff that people talk about of the 53. He was actually dealing with all the stuff way before all that other stuff was going on. So tell us about that and Lev Gleason. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. It's, you know, the book is called American Daredevil 
convicts, communism, and the battles of Lev Gleason. So it's really about his battles on two fronts, the communism, which we've talked about, and now the comics. So it's sort of, I felt like he could never get a break because if he wasn't being attacked for one thing, he was being attacked for the other. Now, he also liked it, which is why I kind of call it the battles of Lev Gleason, because I think he was always up for a fight and he never shied away from a fight. But the other point you just made is absolutely right, which is that he was involved in these fights in the earlier stages and the later stages. They really, both of them had two early stages. The the communism we talked about, again, we always think about the Red Scare and McCarthy, but, but, but before even people even knew who McCarthy was, this stuff with the House American Activities Committee that we just talked about was going on. Similarly, before there were those televised hearings under Kefauver in the Senate, years before Uncle Lev was under attack and mobilizing the comics industry to try to fend off uh, censorship. So the way that he did that was that he was part of the group of publishers who formed the American Comic Book Publishers Association, and he became the president. So he didn't just, you know, he, he didn't just lend his support. He didn't just sort of pay his dues. He was right out there as a spokesperson for the industry. And their approach was to try and ward off government intervention by putting in place a self-censorship mechanism. So the first iteration of what we call the comics code, which was an attempt to say to regulators, to government actors, is like, okay, we understand that there are concerns, but we have it under control. And we're going to review all of our comic books and we're going to make sure that the, the material is appropriate and you can just leave us alone. Well, that didn't work the first time round. It didn't work because not enough publishers participated and, and the, the review mechanism was underfunded and very weak. And, you know, the government folks who were interested understood that. So he, but he tried his best. And as you say, he interacted directly with Keith Faber. He interacted directly with Dr. Wortham on the radio on television, in panel discussions. He appeared at presentations in libraries and synagogues and churches and Masonic halls and, you know, to try to get, to present the comic book industry side of the story. And it, to your point, he had different motivations for doing that. You know, the, the primary one was obviously this, this is livelihood. And not only were comic books his livelihood, the ones that he was publishing were the most controversial of all. Uh, because before horror comics came along, there were crime comics, and Crime Does Not Pay was a Lev Gleason publication. It was hugely successful, the right. most successful of his titles. And it was pretty gruesome stuff. Let's it face it. And although it ended with the criminal having some sort of justice, his means before the end was really highlighted and it was very violent and graphic and intense. Yeah. Totally. Uh, totally. So, I, and I think that, you know, Uncle Lev recognized that and he, you know, he recognized that, look, the, the reason, part of the reason why these comic books were so successful was because of that, because of the detailed depiction of criminal act, actions but he did have a point when he made arguments that were along the lines of, well, a lot of people who read these comics are not kids. 
the, the folks who are buying the comics and the folks who are reading the comic books after they've been purchased, you know, our data suggests that uh, a lot of them are adults. So why are you, this is Uncle Lev saying to the critics, why are you always talking about children when we know that this is a medium that actually attracts adult readers? Now, that was one argument. Another totally different argument is, yes, comic books are read by children and they're good for children because they get children into reading and they get, and, and they also uh, teach children good morals and they teach children to respect authority right. and respect the police. And, the, uh, and these are arguments that Stanley would say like de- two decades after Lev Gleason was already saying this stuff. Yeah. And, and then the final, and I think the most sort of aligned with his politics argument would be, the freedom of speech argument is like, this is the United States. It's simply unconstitutional to regulate speech in this way. Yeah. And that was true <laughs> because, you know, essentially the government really never stepped into censor comic books. The industry did it itself. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting in that the comics code authority later kind of largely formed by DC and Archie, the ACMP, which, which Lev Gleason was a part of was Lev Gleason and then Famous Funnies with Harold, Famous Funnies, Harold Moore. And then what Irving Manheimer, Irving Manheimer, the distributor was also part of that. And what's interesting is Irving Manheimer, Manheimer actually helped Al Harvey start off Harvey Comics. So these are like early guys that didn't become as significant later after the mid fifties. But at this time they were the powerhouses kind of. National was kind of big, was pretty big too. But but still, it's pretty interesting that these guys that are less known now were the ACMP people, which which is great that you highlighted that because I don't think, I've, I've read on the ACMP before and I've never quite seen it highlighted as well as you did in, in your book. And, and then more on Wortham is you actually highlight that he wasn't all bad. There's this narrative that he's like this boogeyman of comics and he's so evil but you point out that he was a liberal, that he was actually, I think, the only, only child psychiatrist that actually had a desegregated children's psych facility, and that he, was, he did actually was concerned with kids' welfare, although he altered a lot of data to get some popularity. But, but that's great that you are able to highlight more complex aspects, more so than I think most people do. I think Dr. Wortham is another just another example of how, like you say, people are complicated and they're multifaceted and they're not, they're very rarely all bad or, or all good. And yeah, Dr. Wortham was, had a practice in Harlem and he was in the same circles as people like Adam Clayton Powell, who published that profile of Uncle Rev in his, in his newspaper in Harlem. And they were on the same side uh, as, Uncle Lev and Dr. Wortham were on the same side of a lot of issues like desegregation. And so, you know, later they became really strong enemies and they, they definitely were not friends ultimately. But I bet in the beginning during those initial encounters when they were on panels together in the early mm-hmm. days, they were, they were probably quite friendly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting in that you also highlight, which I have read before, but it's great that you put it with the rest of what you wrote is that Wortham's research of desegregated child uh, psychiatry facilities and the effect of segregation on a child's self-esteem was used 
in the Brown versus Board of Education to bring more equality for African-Americans. And yet he's so demonized by comic fans of being this horrible person, but he wasn't horrible in that sense. And I'm glad that you put that in there. And I'm glad that more people are going to be aware of these things. Jim, I think you're going to go over Newcastle News, right? Well, yeah, but I I wanted to, I had a couple of questions first. You know, you were naming all of the different arguments that he made. The the other Mm. one that I think is in your book that you didn't mention was the anti-elitism one, and which I thought was good because a lot of people didn't use that. And he brought that one in into play. And and so explain that. Basically, it's it's not everybody has to love Shakespeare. And some people like Western serials, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he said exactly that. He said, look, if, if someone doesn't want to read Macbeth, who are you to tell them that they should? And, you know, I, and also, I think intertwined with that anti-elitist argument is a, a sort of children's rights argument in yeah. a way, which is, don't children have a right to read the content that they're interested in reading? Is it, is it our job as the government, as parents, as schools to regulate everything that children read? And I, you know, I, I didn't really draw this out too much in the book, I don't think, but it's kind of an early iteration of this notion of kids and teenagers as autonomous beings who have the right to make decisions on their behalf and access content, which is, which is directed at them. And that became, you know, really scary to people in the really the height of the comics controversy. But I think that Uncle Lev was onto something because he recognized that children were, you know, children and teens were powerful engines of economic activity in the United States. They still very much are. And so why should we be controlling what they what they consume he was giving uh, them some agency of their own and and that was that was very advanced thinking to some degree at that time in terms of the acmp i wondered if you thought there was anything where they made an error where they could have done something differently such that they would have mattered more where they w- would have survived as 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 something of of value i i don't Nothing comes to mind. I think the problem for Uncle Lev that simply could not be escaped is what I mentioned earlier, which is that his comics were, I mean, he published a variety of publications, but it's true that his, the, the engine behind his publishing business were the crime comics. And the, there was no way that uh, the, the industry was going to come up with a self-censorship mechanism and a code that would satisfy the critics but also allow the crime comics to continue to be produced in a way that would satisfy the desires of the market. So that's my take, but I but but I don't know. I it, it was you know they it was kind of like take one, you know, and it didn't yeah. work. And then take two ultimately, you know, it, it did work because I think folks like Uncle Lev lost out. I mean he the, the, the comics code in its when it finally came to fruition basically made publishing crime does not pay impossible. I mean, you couldn't even have like the word crime yeah. in big right. letters on the cover. 
so we talked a few minutes ago about the 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 purging incident where he he basically said yeah i was wrong and and avoided any kind of sentencing and and your disappointment i got the opposite i got a sense of family pride when you were writing about newcastle news and talking about him taking it to DeWitt Wallace and that that there was a real joy in that chapter because of his own words and where you were getting to just show just how smart he could be, but also how brave he was in just taking it to that guy and his value. So talk, let's talk about that for a minute, because that was one of my favorite, nothing to do with comics, but it was one of my favorite chapters in the whole book. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, I mean, it was so much fun to write. And I actually recently did a, did a Zoom talk with the Chappaquah Library. And the folks there were amazed to learn about all of this history because today Chappaqua is a solidly democratic, liberal, progressive stronghold. And you know, and let's face it, it's where Bill and Hillary Clinton live. But when Uncle Rev moved there in the 40s, it was solidly conservative. There really wasn't a Democratic Party to speak of. And the, what I loved about that, the research that I was able to do is that. It's, it, I was able to see Uncle Lev's voice more clearly than perhaps in any other realm. Because again, comic books, he was publishing them. He wasn't writing them. He wasn't illustrating them. He was providing a framework. And I do think that his belief system courses through a lot of the titles. But in the newspaper he founded in Chappaqua, the Newcastle News, it was, it was very clear that Every single day, uh, every single issue, there was an editorial, and it was in Uncle Lev's voice. And it gave him a platform to talk about not just local issues, like the school should be expanded, the library should be rebuilt, like we should actually invest in our local community, which the Republican establishment felt was you know, not worth it, but also on large issues like the founding of the United Nations, which was happening at the same time, and the fact that the U.S. should join and support this incredible multilateral institution. Well, he used the pages of this little uh, small-town newspaper to, to write about things like that. So, so, yes, it did. It gave me great joy because, in a sense, I feel like it brought me closer to his, his, his true voice than, than a lot of the other aspects of, the work, of his work that's covered in the book. And if the news was Batman, the Tribune was the Joker. They, they, there was a adversarial, I mean, very deep adversarial relationship between those two papers, correct? Absolutely. And it was, the Newcastle Tribune was the, was the conservative establishment paper. It had been around for a while. Uncle Lev came along and he founded a competitor, the Newcastle News. And it was explicitly designed to be a, a, a foil to the Newcastle Tribune. And remember, Uncle Lev did this in a number of other ways as well. For example, he published Reader's Scope, which was a magazine that was clearly meant to be a liberal progressive alternative to Reader's Digest. He published Friday Magazine, which looked an awful lot like Life Magazine. Big photographs, same quality paper, you know, it's it really he he positioned these titles as as very obvious alternatives to the conservative mainstream. And as it turns out, the publisher of Reader's Digest, Dewitt Wallace, was 
was in Chappaqua that, you know, to this day, you can see the original building that housed Reader's Digest, a beautiful building in Chappaqua. So he was a local hero in a way. And Uncle Lev said about just complicating his legacy by talking about, for example, his support for Hitler during the war and his very anti-labor views. And the fact that Reader's Digest, which I grew up reading because I remember my grandfather bought me a subscription and I remember reading it and really enjoying it. Now looking back, I realized that Reader's Digest had actually had a very clear traditionalist conservative perspective that it used it that, that it used reader that it that it basically used the pages of Reader's Digest to promulgate. While Uncle Lev did the same thing in these other publications. And his decision to go after Wallace ultimately was was sort of his downfall too for because Wallace fought back and he's the one that really exposed him in terms of of calling him on him denying that he was a, a, a communist. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think this is this is where Uncle Lev's desire for a fight got the better of him sometimes because, you know, again, DeWitt Wallace was a beloved figure remains a beloved figure. I mean, the Wallace family has done great things in terms of philanthropy. And he decided to go after DeWitt Wallace. Because, and the reason was because DeWitt Wallace had declined to advertise in right. the Newcastle News. <clears throat> and, he, and, he, and, and Wallace like defended that position, saying we can, we can choose how, how we want to advertise. And, and I think Lev turned it into, you're, you're the bully bullying us around. That's right. And yeah, of course, DeWitt Wallace is perfectly, has every right to advertise or not advertise in any publication he sees fit. But Uncle Lev kind of pounced on that because the reason why Wallace withdrew his advertising is because Uncle Lev had quoted a particular anti-fascist writer in the pages of the newspaper that DeWitt Wallace really did not like, partly right. because that, that guy had you know pointed out the a sort of Nazi sympathizing past that Wallace was, you know, not eager to talk about. Right. Um, but and then yeah. there was there there was that interesting thing of of Lev Gleason asking if he was or ever been a communist, and he said no. But then that resulted in a signature that he wrote some years back in the '30s, where he was a member of the Communist Party, and that that created some some embarrassment. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's. Well, first of all, I, I think one of the challenges of this whole area of inquiry is what does it mean to be a communist? You know, what does it mean to be a communist party member? There's this, you know, this notion of a card carrying communist. Well, a lot of the people we're talking about, and I put Uncle Lev in this category, were, you know, as we talked about at the outset, young, progressive, politically active folks in places like Manhattan. And for them, the Soviet Union represented a, an alternative way of doing things. And so, yes, Uncle Lev was very excited about the Soviet Union. He wanted to visit the Soviet Union. And the, there were a variety of groups that, that today, if we looked at them, we would say they were just run-of-the-mill activist political groups supporting desegregation, supporting workers' rights, supporting civil rights, but they were all branded as communist front organizations. And because the 
some at least of the people involved, like Uncle Lev, had participated in meetings that were, I guess, Communist Party meetings. But then again, what does that even mean? Like, I'm a Democrat. Am I a member of the Democratic Party? I mean, I'm a registered Democrat. So in that sense, I've affiliated myself with the Democratic Party. And I think the controversy that you that you allude to is that the Newcastle Tribune found what they alleged to be Uncle Lev's signature in a, you know, when you vote, you, you sign your name and next to his name, it said communist. So he, he was identifying himself as a communist in an election. Now, does that mean that he was a member of the communist party? I guess it could, but it's not like he was an employee of a communist party that was, and it's not like he was paid by a party infrastructure that had its roots back to the Soviet Union. Right, right. He wasn't a paid Soviet spy is the, is the bottom line there, right? At least I found no. Uh, at least as far as we know, anyway. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. the FBI. You know, the, the, yeah. as I'm sure we'll get to, I, I found his FBI file, which was, you know, almost 200 pages long, right. uh, filled with information about him. But the FBI, you know, they ultimately concluded... Yeah, this guy was into this stuff early on, but he he never he ultimately did not present a threat to the government of the United States. Yeah, we're uh, definitely going to get to the FBI part. Okay. <laughs> so so yeah, so Chappaqua, I think you're absolutely right. It was it was this interesting period when he was at the height of his financial success. Right. So the, the comics business was going great, and he used that money to buy a house in Chappaqua with a staff and a driver. He'd commute every day into Manhattan. He threw parties. He participated in parties out in the suburbs. And in New York, he was very active in donating money to various causes and attending dinners in support of politicians and organizations. So it was a very, very active and he was living the high life um, during that period. And now... Talking about the subject of Keith Alver, you know, people like Wortham were looking at him as you're corrupting children for cheap money and to get rich, right? And and then maybe some would say that he used that money to then fund these communist things. And that would be kind of a negative way of looking at some of these actions. But going into Wortham and Keith Falver and juvenile delinquency, you mentioned that there was first an investigation, Keith Falver investigating the link of comics to crime, which was like 1950 or so. Then he had a failed presidential Democratic nomination for president in 52. And then in 53, he then started looking at maybe to drum up, drum up some popularity to look at the link between comics and juvenile delinquency, which was a separate question. And then on that, on that issue, then him and Wortham really went pretty hard on comics and William Gaines testified on TV, like Jim mentioned earlier, Lev had debated Wortham and with Keith Alver already, he kind of was very familiar with these people. Tell us about, you know, his wanting to testify there and, and ultimately, the, the failure of the ACMP 
how that folded, and then the comics code. Tell us about that sequence with Lev. I think, you know, what, the only part of that that I really feel like I can add to beyond what has already been documented is the fact that I think people figured that by the time the televised hearings came along, Uncle Lev was out, just out of it, you know, and not interested anymore and had kind of taken a back seat. But it's, it turns out that he actually was, was very active behind the scenes and he, he advocated a, an even harsher approach with respect to Dr. Wortham then was ultimately taken, which is interesting given what we talked about before. He he felt like there was there there could be uh, a benefit in trying to really assassinate Dr. Wortham's character and present him as kind of a crazy old kook. Yeah, uh, and he tried to feed that information to to the committee. You know, I was able to find a letter that he wrote to. I think it's to Keith Oliver saying, you know, why, you know, I really would like to appear and I'd like you to ask these questions of Dr. Wortham. Like, why is he so obsessed with sex? Like, <laughs> what, you know, right, why, right. What, why is, what is it about him that leads him to be so interested in children? And, yes. You know, like, it's all a little fishy, isn't it? And, yeah. and so I thought that was, you know, I never found any, example of that argument being made publicly yeah. but it was interesting to find behind the scenes that he what it told me was that uncle Lev was very closely following every step of the way yeah. and and wished that he had been able to be more involved but i think to your question about how it happened i think he was he was sidelined by by other publishers who again recognized that well look this guy i mean he's He's publishing Crime Does Not Pay. He's the guy who basically yeah. came up with yeah. th- these uh, comics that are causing us so much trouble. Yes. So how, like, how is it really going to help us to have him leading the charge? Uh-huh. That's that's my sense of what happened. I see. And, and also I think back to Aunt Peggy, his wife, I think that she was counseling him to kind of take a back seat I and see. try to step away. Is, um, is, it, is it because of like his previous encounters that did he feel a little defeated on some level, just politically and publicly with his dealings earlier with like the Wallace and being outed and some embarrassment? I mean, and the FBI was talking to him. Was he just like, all right, I'm just going to kind of back off? Yeah, now. that's what I'm I mean, wondering too. The communist aspect and the revelation that and and the attacks in that direction. Was he fighting two fronts and, and were other people nervous about making him a spokesperson when he had that communist angle going at the same time? Yeah. That's, I, I don't know, but I suspect that must have been Taken uh, part of it. So he, you know, he probably knew that he was being followed by the FBI, but he definitely knew it when the FBI came to talk to him and to interview him directly, which happened, you know, around the time that his business was starting to collapse because of the attacks on on comics and also changes in, you know, readership patterns and, you know, comics in general were, were kind of taking a turn for the worse at that time. But I... I think that what you say is probably true, that folks in the industry were probably regarded him as 
too not worth touching, you know, yeah. because of the political stuff. And then also I think he was just tired. Yeah, probably um, burnt out at that point, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. But you know what's interesting is that 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 connection between the comics and the communism was never directly drawn by right. his critics, yeah. which I which I was really amazed by. Like I thought I thought that would have been front and center in terms of the yeah. attacks on his comics. Right, because be, his name is on the company name. His name is right on there, and his communist background was was front page news. Yeah. Um, and it's not just funny. in the local paper, but in, in Newsweek magazine, in, in the New York Times, you know, that the whole joint anti-fascist refugee committee fight was major national news for yeah. a long time. So I was I was kind of surprised by that, but it but it wasn't so it wasn't explicitly part of what led to the demise of his business. But maybe behind the scenes, it was part of the reason why he was sidelined from the from those to yeah to to defend the industry. There's also a little bit of another aspect of just Bill Gaines gets more notoriety in it just because the horror comics, like horror, is basically crime taken to the next gruesome level, and and because he had pictures of women's head decapitated on the cover, and he just get got so outlandish with it just to kind of sell comics and feed the science fiction line and keep that subsidized with this gory stuff. Maybe that just was also just more of what was on people's minds at the time anyway. Cause I think I was looking at Lev's crime comics from the early forties to like later in the later forties and early fifties. And they're not as intense in the later ones. They're, right. they're, they're a little more there. It's a lot more tame by that point. And, and so maybe just, Bill Gaines was just an easier target anyway for everyone to focus on. Just visually speaking, Crime Does Not Pay wasn't as intense as it was when it first started. Then there's what, what's also interesting was you point out the different publishers because, and I always thought that Archie and DC Comics or National, they were doing a lot of the kids stuff. I guess I guess Harvey was too, but but they really went pretty hard into the comics code and making it impossible for people like Lev Gleason or Bill Gaines to even make a living anymore by agreeing with the distributors that if you're going to have this on your newsstand, we're going to give you this seal. And part of that is you can't have the word crime or you can't have the word terror. You can't have, it's almost like it's streamlined it where only DC Archie and Harvey and, and maybe Atlas, if it can adapt, can survive. And, and, and then, and then you have like uh, the old guard kind of falling apart at that point. Lev Gleason can't compete for TV rock and roll for the kids' attention. Tell us about just the overall decline of of that of that aspect of the comics industry and and Lev going out of business. I, I mean, I think you've summed it up really well. I, I think it was a confluence of those factors. One was the the self censorship mechanism that was put in place to ward off government censorship made it basically impossible for uncle Lev to sell his most successful titles and and you and you can see that it, the the crime comics over time did be in order to try to comply with the code did become less gruesome but also in a, in a way less interesting and i think that you know that contributed to declines in sales then you just have the fact that the industry as a whole was taking 
uh, a financial hit as, as tastes are changing, the rise of television, the rise of different forms of popular entertainment. And, and then I think finally, what we said before, which is that I think that Uncle Lev, he probably could have fought back and changed the business, retooled. I mean, he had other titles that were not crime comics. You know, there were titles that were geared towards girls, you know, that were traditional sort of romance titles and, you know, other titles that were not, you know, obviously that were more milk toast, you could say, and, and were perfectly fine under the new code. But I think in order to make a go of being a true competitor to these other companies, he would have had to have launched a full-on effort that I think he just wasn't, he didn't have the energy for it anymore, given the fights that he had engaged in for really decades at that point. I mean, this has been going along, going on for a long time for him by this point. And I think he and Peggy thought, okay, you know, why don't we just try and enjoy life for a bit? Right. I have a related question, which is, yeah, so the other lines were targeting him as a, as a major competitor, but he also, one of his arguments was targeting other companies in that he talked about the good comics and then the bad publishers, the bad comics. And basically his argument there was they're good comics because I publish them. I mean, that I'm, I'm the good publisher. Talk about that for a minute. Cause I, I was struck by that in relation to, and in contrast to what Alex is talking about, he was also doing that as a, as a, these are the bad guys go after them. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was, that was very explicit in, in the, in the earlier efforts we were talking about the, the ACMP, they were, they were at these hearings, they would talk about how, well, you know, we're the good guys, we're joining forces, we're trying our best, but you know, those other publishers, they're the ones you really need to worry about because they're, they're just publishing trash. I mean, that's essentially what they were saying. <laughs> and then in the, in the, in the later iteration, you were talking about the horror comics and EC. I mean, I think Uncle Rev really did think that that stuff was trash. I mean, I, I, for him, I think there was a big difference between true crime and horror, you know, between uh, sort of the real life escapades of mobsters and, you know, tales from the crypt, you know, kind of made up stuff. And, and I, so I actually think he was genuine when he was criticizing those comic books as having less value to the reader, but I think mainly it was just a way to position himself as one of the good guys who should survive as opposed to one of the bad guys who shouldn't. And that testimony by Gaines actually made him mad, didn't it? I mean, that was one of the reasons he wanted to testify was after listening to Gaines testify and, and really didn't like what he had to say. Is that right? Absolutely. And he, not only did he not like what he had to say, he, he was, he, he felt like that testimony undermined so much of what he had been fighting for for so long, which is to say, what about all the arguments that he had been making that actually there was value in these comics and they weren't just salacious? But what Gaines had done was basically just, you know, admit that these comics were there as for 
And and I think that really upset Michael Love. And I think Love thought that he could do a better job. I think that he he you know again he had a very healthy ego, and he thought if he, if only he were up there answering those questions, you know, because look at how well he had done in the past. And you know, and back to that joint anti-fascist refugee committee hearing. You know, he felt pretty proud of himself back then for using all the right language and pairing with the legislators. And I, I think he kind of was itching to do the same thing again and felt annoyed that he wasn't given the chance. But, but I think to Alex's point, he probably wasn't given a chance mainly because the horror, horror comics were the perfect target. And that moment, you know, that is so famous when James holds up that bloody head was just tailor-made for yeah. for television and for Kefauver and for Wortham. I mean, that is exactly what they wanted. And I think Galev felt like he wouldn't have given it to them. Yeah, and there was that whole question of good taste and them holding up that Johnny Craig cover and saying, do you feel this is in good taste? And he was like, ugh. I mean, he kind of checkmated himself a little bit. Bill Gaines did. But also, yeah. Lev could have taken his comics to the ne- next level, like turn Al Capone into a syphilis zombie, tainted meat. He could have gone that direction, <laughs> but... Oh well. Oh well. What could have been? Yeah. That's right. That's right. Alex, anything else before I do the no, FBI go for it. FBI, FBI Jim. Hashtag. Okay. Go for All it. right. So so we get to the, the Freedom of Information Act and, and you getting access to the FBI files. And I want to know what the biggest surprises you had in reading the file, because you had by this point done all your legwork and you you had a understanding and then you get these files. And you're actually, this is a moment where you probably hear your uncle's voice for the first time in the most way, which is that transcript of him actually cooperating with the FBI in terms of talking about another individual, which was Walter Bernstein. And so when you're reading that and you're hearing your uncle, I, I want to hear about that and, and it kind of set it up for us as well. Absolutely. So... I applied to the FBI through Freedom of Information Act, not even knowing whether or not there was a file available. I mean, at that point, it seemed to me like it was a strong possibility, but I had really no idea. So I just sort of lobbed it in and it took a while, but it came back to me and it was a big stack of papers and it was, you know, the one thing that, that you know, I'll say right off the bat is that these files are riddled with redactions. So when you're reading them, there are blank spots all over the place. It's kind of like, you know, the Nixon tapes, right? So you, when you're reading along, you're, you know, you're trying to, to piece together, well, you know, who, who are they talking about here? Because they eliminate, for example, any informant's name is out because that would be, you know, that would be a violation of the terms of the informant's arrangement with the FBI. They have a category, which is, you know, anyone who's living, anyone that is basically any invasion of privacy. And then, of course, they have national security reasons and things like that. But essentially, you're reading this, and sometimes there's more white on the page than black. So that was an interesting experience for me. But what I'll say the biggest surprise, ultimately, is that by the time I got the FBI file, there really wasn't much in it that I didn't already know. Hmm. And, and, I, and I think that it, I was really surprised by the extent to which 
the FBI relied on other sources for its information. I had always thought that, for example, journalists, there were some very strident anti-communist journalists, commentators, opinion makers, uh, who were very active in the 40s and 50s. And I had always thought that they got their information from the FBI, and which is, they did. But uh, the reverse was also true, so that the FBI file was filled with clippings of newspaper articles written by journalists you know, with tidbits of information about Uncle Webb. So th it was an interesting look at that, that sort of the way that world worked, the kind of conservative journalistic media uh, industrial complex, the FBI, the Department of Justice, and the House Un-American Activities Committee was kind of a circular, circular mechanism whereas inf when information flowed from one to the next. And I think his FBI file was, in a sense, it was kind of like a scrapbook of clippings that the FBI made. And so that would be number one. And then number two would be that they, I, I was amazed by the degree to which resources were dedicated to Uncle Ralph. I mean, as we said before, like this man, like he, unless I really missed something big in doing the research, he was not a threat to the United States government. I mean, there's no suggestion that he ever was interested in taking down the U.S. government or dismantling the system of government we have. It's just not true, you know? And he was a, basically a very progressive Democrat who supported progressive policies that I, as a Democrat today, support in 2020. So I was... To your question about surprise, I just was amazed that our our government would use taxpayer dollars to so I mean they were rifling through his trash. They were following him in <laughs> Chappaqua. They were they were sort of there were these strange moments when whichever agent was responsible, because of course the name was redacted, would be parked outside of a meeting hall in Chappaqua where Uncle Lev and maybe to shield Hammett and the Rosenthal's who were close friends of the Gleason's in Chappaqua were having a meeting about setting up a democratic party structure in Chappaqua. And that, you know, and, and the notes in the file would, would be the makes of the cars, the license plate numbers, the complexion of the people emerging from the meeting, you know, and if they were, you know, sort of, Eastern European or Jewish looking, then it's like, well, okay, maybe that's a little suspect. I mean, it just was, it just all seems so ridiculous to me, to be honest, in retrospect, that that is what the FBI was doing. And then when you think that they were also, you know, ultimately investigating Martin Luther King, then you really begin to wonder like, okay, what exactly are they there for? So, so that's, that, I think that would be my, my response to your question about what surprised me the most. So, so one of the things I was struck by at the end was how close the FBI agents seemed to have actually got it, understood who, who your uncle was, and that he said, yeah, he's really more about the money and about being a, he's a salesman, you know, is what he's a, a promoter and a salesperson. I don't think he's that, you know, he's dangerous. He just wants to make a living. And, and that's, they could have done that a lot earlier, but that's, <laughs> but, but that was the gist of it, wasn't it? I think so. And, and it's funny, it echoed 
the conclusions of a report that the U.S. Army had commissioned on Uncle Lev. So another federal body investigating this guy, likely because, as you mentioned, he re-enlisted during World War II. But there were informants who were reporting on Uncle Lev during his service. And the, the gist of that was, yeah, this guy's just kind of a blowhard. You know, like he won't stop talking. He really thinks highly of himself. But in terms of the politics, you know, he was characterized as a rabid FDR Democrat. And so, and someone who wanted to be, wanted to make money. And that was the prime motivator in terms of, you know, the comics. So I think you're, I think you're right. I think the FBI agent who ultimately met with him, you know, ostensibly about Walter Bernstein and another, you know, a subject of an FBI investigation, but really also as a way to glean information directly from Uncle Lev. I think his conclusion was, you know, like a lot of people, this guy, when he was younger in New York, attended some meetings, maybe registered as a communist, gave money to lots of progressive groups, ate at restaurants with communists, shared drinks with communists, wanted to go to the Soviet Union because Moscow seemed like a cool city. But was he a threat to the U.S.? Probably not. Do you, do you think if, if your uncle could come back and read the book and and offer you advice on it, my first thought was he, he might say, can you can you call me something besides an informant in that chapter? I think he would I, I think he would not regard himself as an informant. The way that I imagine that whole interaction and the chapter I write about write about it in is framed that way is that he he was at the office, he was happy to have a very friendly conversation with this FBI agent and share whatever information he had. You know, he didn't regard <laughs> himself as an informant. But I think from the FBI's perspective, that's exactly what he was, because right. for that, from that agent's perspective, he's just there to glean information. And Lev must have realized that. But it's, you know, I think that he, he wasn't uncomfortable in that interaction, as far as we can tell. So I don't think he felt like he had a lot to hide at that point. Yeah. Alex, legacy. So what, what I really enjoyed was actually finding out what happens to these guys after the, the dust has settled, the comics code is instituted, and all sorts of publishers go out of business and, and only the, the more kid-friendly ones can survive. And so then he just kind of retires. Well, it was actually kind of interesting to see what happened to the, the, the people over at Lev Gleason, right? So Charles Biro went to Hollywood, worked for television, which I didn't know. I thought that was pretty cool because there's other comic writers that went and worked for TV. Howard Chaikin and Jerry Conway, more modern people. But back then, Don Rico uh, left comics to go to TV. But it's cool to see that Charles Byro did. And I think you mentioned even the Wood brothers did the same. Not Bob Wood, but Dave Wood and the other brother. They went to TV. And then Bob Wood, obviously, he had a weird outcome, didn't he? He did. Sort of something ripped from the pages of Crime Does Not Pay, in a way. He, he really had a, a difficult, ended up in an altercation with a woman and ended up killing her and confessed his crime pretty much that night. 
And he ended up spending time in prison. And then, you know, he ultimately died without, without much and under not so great circumstances. So I think, you know, by that point, I don't think Uncle Lev had any contact with him at all. Right. Um, and, he right. Also, and he didn't have contact with Charlie Byro either, which when I spoke to Charlie Byro's daughter, who's still alive today, she, she talked about how her family was really resentful of Lev Gleason in a way, because they felt like he disappeared and kind of abandoned them at a very difficult time. And, you know, they didn't even know where he went. They, they thought that he moved to, you know, some people thought he went to Cuba, maybe the communist connection. Some people thought he moved to Alaska. You know, the fact is he just moved upstate a little bit, you know, a short drive away. But according to her, her father, Charlie Byro, didn't even know where he was. So I think from, I think to a point you made earlier, Uncle Lev made a decision to really step away. Yeah, and and I think from afar, reading about how the industry was was struggling, and folks like Bob Wood really were struggling, and other you know other artists who took their own lives, who had worked with Uncle Lev, I, I think it. I don't know, but I suspect for Aunt Peggy and Uncle Lev, it kind of made them feel like, yeah, you know, that chapter of our lives is is pretty much over, and we're not going back. Yeah, and something, and I don't know why I never thought of it before, but you had pointed it out, is that once they couldn't make any money with the comics code and it just kind of went belly up business-wise, Biro, Wood, Gleason, they were all living off that that money, that high amount of money for a long time, living large, kind of similar to the way Siegel and Schuster were kind of living large for those 10 years while they were working over at DC to like 40 eight or so because their 10-year contract went up and suddenly there's no money around. They're just like, and, and that's what happened with these guys. They were, there was just suddenly no money around and they were kind of living, they had a hard, they had a hard period there. And Byro looks like he made it in TV with, like the Wood brothers did, but Bob Wood in the midst of just being just poor and uh, destitute and not having any money, his alcoholism and, and his gangster relationships just kind of, ate him up. And, and, and I just thought that that was interesting, just the lack of, of money, a lack of, of, of living in those good times and then going down mon- monetarily and the different yeah. roads that are taken. What a, what a fascinating connection that I don't think I even thought about before. Tell us then, where did Lev go? How did he retire? How did, it, how did he write it out? So I agree with you that that period is so... It's so interesting. And luckily, that period is obviously chronologically more recent. So I was able to speak to, for example, Charlie Byro's daughter, or as I mentioned earlier, the son of you know Charlotte Lottie, who was Uncle Lev's office assistant, and 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 glean from from their perspective. They were kids during this time, but they remember it very, very well. I mean, Charlie Byro's daughter, she remembers when they had to leave their nice apartment on Park Avenue yeah. and move to someplace much more modest. Well, that's because there was no work. There was no money. Uh, yes. The company was gone. And then, you know, in terms of Charlotte, her son talks about how, I mean, she really idolized Uncle Lev. And, and he remembers stories of things being so bad that, that she had to bring Uncle Lev meals to help him through 
And he even remembers hearing that Uncle Lev ended up in jail. Now, there's no evidence of either of those things. And the way that memory works is a funny thing. So who knows why? But, you know, when I talked to Larry, he, he was pretty convinced that this is what his mom said. And I think it speaks to just what you mentioned, which is this was a really sudden and drastic change in these people's lives. And they had to scramble. And so you talked about what Charlie Bauer did. What Uncle Lev did was he decided to become a real estate agent. I mean, he, he, he was good at selling things, comfortable being a salesperson. And so they left Chappaqua, they sold their house, and they moved further upstate to a much, much more modest community and more modest house. They left all of that behind. And another interesting part, again, through the eyes of a child, is I was able to meet the daughter of their closest friends in Chappaqua, who were the Rosenthal's, one of the few Jewish families in Chappaqua at the time. And she talks about how they were so close that they would spend Christmas together. You know, even though it was a Jewish family, they would celebrate Christmas with the Gleasons. And I looked at their photo album, and at a certain point, at around this time, Lev and Peggy simply disappear from the photo album. I mean, they, it is, it's amazing. It's like one page, they're there. You turn the page, they're gone. And so even though they only moved what would be a short drive away or today a few stops on the Metro North, they really left that world totally behind. And Peggy stopped working. She had worked at the Newcastle News, running the newspaper. And Uncle Lev uh, started selling houses and he joined a small real estate company in Somers, New York. And then there was, and then he retired at Cape Cod, right? And that was more toward the end. He's, he's elderly. It's like the late 60s. He's starting to see, you had mentioned, the 60s radicals and a lot of the, the protests going on. And that was probably the, you know, and then obviously what, Nixon became president in 68. And then and then it was about to be another election year, and then he passed away, what, in 1971 or so, right? T- tell mm-hmm. us about, and he was selling American Eagles. What was that? Yeah, I think it was just, you know, a way to make ends meet. At that point, they, neither of them were, were working. They were living off their savings. They bought a small house in Cape Cod, not sort of like a seaside mansion, but just a small, a modest cottage in a kind of retirement area. and. They started, you know, sort of mail order uh, business for, you know, you still see them uh, today, especially in when I drive around like the Berkshires or upstate New York, you'll see, you know, in old homes right above the front door, there'll be this kind of American Eagle made of some kind of metal, maybe bronze, and it's affixed almost like above a mantelpiece above the front door. So it was considered a patriotic ornamentation of a home. And, you know, that was just... To me, that was just, again, a way to highlight how, how far they had fallen financially right. and, and socially. I mean, they weren't, at this point, they, didn't, they, were not, they did not have an active social life. They just led a very quiet life until he passed away peacefully in his sleep. You know, I think what is interesting to me about the very end of his life is, as you say, the politics, which is that you know, a lot of people become more conservative as they grow older. Yeah. And we see, you know, the, the Reagan Democrat, you know, this incredible trend that we've experienced in the U.S. 
since the 80s, which is the people who were real, real fans of the New Deal and FDR were captured by the Republican Party under Reagan. And I think we're, we're maybe seeing, seeing the tail end of that. But, you know, Uncle Lev did not change one bit. He remained a solid Democrat his whole life and a very progressive. And in the sort of anniversary book of the class of 1920 of Harvard, it's been the 50th anniversary sort of alumni book where people report on their lives and what they were proud of and what they believe. Most people were, were pretty conservative and were proud of how much money they'd made or you know how, how comfortable their lives were. But he talked very specifically and explicitly about civil rights and the, and the movement against the war in Vietnam, which was happening at that moment and how he felt so strongly in support of the folks who were protesting and how they gave him hope for the future. And that, that really is interesting, especially you know, I was just reading, you know, there's a new book about Stan Lee that's going to be coming out next year, a biography. And there's a piece in the Washington Post today, which is sort of like five myths about Stan Lee. And, you know, one of the myths that the author talks about is that Stan Lee was so progressive. But in fact, you know, his politics were relatively conservative and his view of the protesters in 68 and then were that they were, you know, radical, disruptive and, you know, not to be taken seriously. So Agolev was a much older, different generation, but he was right there with those guys. And if he had been more younger and more healthy, he would have been marching too. Yeah, Lee was very anti-communist in his, in his writings and, and in his philosophy during all of that. Did you did you do you feel at peace with coming to know your grand uncle Lev Gleason and do you feel a connection to him? This was my way of getting to know him. It's it's one of the most painful things about doing a project like this that you will never have the chance to meet someone who seems not only interesting, but someone who I would really have liked and gotten along with. And there are echoes of his life in mine, I feel. But I feel like I did the best I could. And through this book, I do feel like I got to know him. And, you know, just shy of being able to, you know, give him a hug and really uh, know him in the flesh, so to speak, as a family man. I feel like I did get to know who he was and I, I, I gained a lot of respect for him as a complex figure, multifaceted, but someone who I really wish I had known better. I, I just wanted to say that I, I was telling my wife in, in describing the book that it was sort of like reading about a, a Z-Lig, like a Woody Allen Z-Lig, only one with agency, and that he's everywhere in terms of both the history of comics, he's there from Eastern color through Siegel and Schuster sending, you know, the Superman, like every step of the way through until the comics code, he's at every juncture and is, is the unknown, like should be known character that, that different other people step into the, onto the front of it. And he's actually more significant than, than people have any idea about. And your book allows for that, but it's also the same thing would apply to 
political culture and events during that same period that he's simultaneously being investigated in the FBI and and the un-American activities, all, all of those house, all of those things that are the most significant things happening in the nation during that period, he's got his thumb on that too. So what a fascinating subject. And we just want to everybody. Well, this has been another episode of the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Thanks so much, Brett, for introducing us and the world to the legacy and the history of Lev Gleason Comics and Lev Gleason, the person. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your reading the book and, and having this conversation with me. It's been a great joy.